When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Movement in nature has always inspired Kia, and now it has inspired a completely new musical instrument. Introducing Movement, the world's first instrument that's scientifically designed to inspire you. A collaboration between the house audio, renowned synth builder Arthur Jolie, and Kia, built using the sounds of movement from nature to make music that puts you into a creative state of flow. Discover the inspirational sound of movement at kia.com. Kia, movement that inspires. Strong woman, strong woman. Hey, I'm Poppy Ajuda and welcome to my Strong Woman podcast. This podcast is all about discussing the things most important to me, from music, feminism, sexuality and gender, to race, class and politics. On this podcast, I will invite friends to talk about how these concepts intersect with their lives and hopefully offer you a little bit of laughter and a lot of food for thought. Hey, you're listening to this week's episode in conversation with Aisha Akambi. Aisha is an incredible thinker who continuously inspires me to think bigger. She forces us to check our own biases, our own positions in the world, and really truly is herself at all costs. Whether you agree with her or not, we need more people who sit outside of our echo chambers. So I loved having this opportunity to speak to her. Aisha, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on because I love the way that you think about the world, the way that you challenge the dominant narrative and and kind of force us to think about our own biases and our own differences in in a way that is different to how most people talk about them. And I kind of wanted to start with what brought you to this point and have you always thought in this way did it develop are there things that helped you engage in the world in in a different way yeah um definitely i i definitely haven't always thought this way but it was actually in 2012 i had a really big uh life-changing major event that was my brother actually dying um he was murdered oh wow and what that did to me you know that was obviously completely unexpected mm. and it just really forced me into a deep contemplation um he was essentially killed for his things. Someone wanted to steal from him. And that really got me thinking about the emphasis people place on material. Mm. You know, the fact that, you know, materialism is, is such a big deal and having things um, to such an extent that people can kill for them. Mm. And that just really made me think about our values, why we value things and why we want the things that we want and, you know, status and why we want it. And 
yeah, with everything, I think it just made me question myself as well and the things that I wanted and what I called success. And so I think that was the beginning of me just sort of unraveling everything mm. in myself. And through unraveling a lot in myself, I think I was able to see other people in a way that I hadn't before. Um, I knew that there was so much more to me than I had ever acknowledged. And I think one of my main missions is helping people to recognize that, that we're all so much more than we know and certainly not everything that we think. So yeah, I'd say 2012, 13 was the beginning of a breaking point for me. So I went through what some people might call a breakdown. Others mm. might call it a, a breakthrough. Uh, yeah, but either way, I think the important point is what was deduced from that time. Mm. And yeah, I just started having a deeper connection with nature, a deeper connection with human beings. And I just recognized that we all have so much more in common than we do apart. And I think it's the way that we separate, label, box each other that prevents us from seeing this. And so, yeah, I think... My core message is probably quite simple. It's probably just trying to reiterate more and more that we have more in common than we do apart. It's incredible that, and I'm really sorry to hear about that happening, but it's, it's so incredible that you could develop in that way from such a traumatic experience because, mm. you know, we think about things in so many different ways and it's so empowering to, to make it mean something more and actually to open your mind to understanding things in a different way because a lot of people would find that difficult. And I'm sure it was a very long and difficult process. But I think we have to try our best to not take sides or see things in one way. And sometimes our emotions can make us do that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you talk about that a lot in the, in the sense of like fitting with the dominant narrative or not wanting to say something that contradicts a certain school mm -hmm. of thought because other people would be like, oh, then you don't, you're not on our side. And I've definitely heard you talk about that kind of stuff before. Yeah, I think for me, when my brother died, I realised how fragile life was. Mm. And it just didn't make sense to live in this one life. It's the only one life that we know we have, at least guaranteed. No one has come back from the dead and said that there's something else. <laughs> and so I don't take this to be a rehearsal. And so if this isn't a rehearsal, then we only have this one time to truly understand who we are. Mm. And... I really think that that's an important thing to do. So it just, it seems to me to be a waste of life and a waste of who we are to not express our thoughts. As long as we're putting them across in a way that is respectful and a way that isn't judgmental, you know, I really encourage people to, to say what's real because that's how I think we start to realise we have more in common. That's also something that I wanted to talk about a bit later in terms of, maybe we can talk about it now, how polarised the world can feel. Mm. And I think, for me personally, more so now than ever, I feel like we're polarised in, in so many different ways and often we come from the mindset that if someone doesn't agree with us, then we should disregard them completely and all have these particular safe spaces where we can flourish in our own beliefs. And I think that it's really important to have safe spaces and it's really important to encourage people to love themselves in the way that they are. But I worry that it, it isn't that useful sometimes for us to just disregard, like I'm a product of interracial relationships and even the way that we think about race now sometimes, I feel like it's, if you don't understand who I am and you haven't done the work to learn, which I think people obviously should do the work to learn, then I'm not going to engage with you at all and... You know, if we all had that mindset, I wouldn't be born. Yes, <laughs> and, right. and sometimes that's like a kind of interesting thing for me to think about because obviously those relationships would have had their own problems at that time and that's why we're here now talking about them but what does it mean for people 
actually being able to understand each other and actually progressing in a real way mm -hmm. if we don't acknowledge our differences. And I feel like you've spoken about this kind of thing before. Yes, um, I, I think, you know, the truth is, as, as far as I see it, is we all have a lot to learn about each other. Mm. And so whether you're white, black, Asian, I don't, I don't understand asking people to learn about my experiences and my history if I'm not going to do the same. You know, if I'm not going to try and understand why people have come to their views um so no i don't i don't personally think you know i would never tell someone to read a book to learn about my experiences i would tell them to read themselves and be honest with themselves and mm. and be thoughtful and, and speak to people engage with people who are not like you who don't share your political beliefs who have a different background maybe a different class background a different age demographic i think when we when we're sort of expansive in in who we allow ourselves to connect to I think we can learn these things without having to read the books, which isn't to say that reading books is not worthwhile, but I don't think it's the the best way to try and learn about someone because what one black person says in a book is definitely not necessarily what I'm going to think. Mm. And so the problem is with telling people to read books to, to learn about the black experiences, even black people um, disagree mm. with many of current notions about race. I guess it's not based in a reality yes. of experience. And so if you only read books, and then that's kind of often how people get it wrong. Exactly. And they don't know how to use the terms. They don't know how to say things with conviction because they, it's actually not based in any real experience of connecting with people. And also, sometimes I think it's a lot harder mm -hmm. to do what you're saying and talk to people who share different views from you it's a lot more work mm -hmm. than to find a space where you're accepted yeah I think if anything I think safe spaces would have the best utility if they facilitated conversations with people who were different so an ideal safe space to me would be getting black and white people together who may view race differently or who may have different conceptions about um, certain racial disparities or getting people like uh, from the left and from the right in the same room um, and having the safe space to talk about these things where no one is going to be called a horrible name. We're not going to make any character judgments or assassinations because I think having a safe space with people who already feel mm. the way that you do is kind of what we practice in life yeah. in general. So, yeah, I think safe spaces are best utilised, in my opinion, yeah, when you have people who do have opposing beliefs, having the space and time to hash it out. And really be challenged. Yeah, exactly. And realise that they might be wrong in some ways or right in other ways. Right, because safe spaces at the moment, they don't challenge us. They may be comforting for us, mm. but they don't challenge us. And I guess it, that also begs the question, like, how useful or safe spaces in terms of comforting us in a space where in a world where we're oppressed mm -hmm. and obviously that safe spaces are important in that sense and other people might feel a bit like well my life is already really hard why should I spend the rest of it engaging in all these really difficult conversations mm -hmm. and should everyone be an activist in that sense because mm. that is kind of what we're asking people to do mm. well maybe what I would say is I believe that life is hard for us all and I think maybe one of the the greatest misconceptions that we have is that having money, being white or having any privilege negates you from having to deal with the hard task of being human. No one escapes that and we can see that. The thing is life gives us very many examples of rich people, celebrities, artists, people who have everything in the world and yet they're still in pain, you know, and so we know that privilege doesn't you know, negate us from having to deal with all of these things. So, yeah, I would say that life is hard for us all. And whether you are an oppressed class or a discriminated class or however you want to see it, I do actually believe that 
we humans are always having to face some sort of challenge, but it just, you know, they just happen on different levels. Mm, I guess that's going back to your point about finding the commonality between yeah, everyone. I think so, because even there are certain things that like a rich, famous person is going to have to go through that someone else would never, you know, like. So maybe that's the sort of thing where you never know who you can trust. People want to be around you for the wrong reasons. Family turning against you or certain or suddenly expecting things from you. These things can feel oppressive. Fair enough, the oppression may not be coming from the system, but it is very oppressive to have people just assume what you're going to be like or assume that you should pay for everything or whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, I just think that um, there is no there is no escape from, you know, the very hard task of having to be human. And so we all have to confront that. What would you say, because I feel like people who didn't agree with that idea of mm -hmm. these obviously different levels of oppression and intersectionality plays a huge part in that, who say, yeah, but those problems aren't as bad as... Mm, well, other types of oppression? Well, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about that because unless we've been those other people, I don't know how we can make that call. And that's just to me, I just, um, yeah, I just, I've never been those people. So it's not something that I would feel confident to say. And equally, we can't assume that every black person or every gay person um, even feels oppressed mm. or feels that they their life has been marred by racism or marred by homophobia you know I am a black woman I'm not straight and I would not say personally that those things have been a huge challenge in my life and actually when they have been a huge challenge in my life it's mainly come from me than from the outside um, it's because I haven't been comfortable with certain things. But isn't that feeling from the outside anyway the reason that you're uncomfortable with it is because society has told you a certain thing about who you are? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of both. So let's say um, as a young person, I didn't see um, the mainstream media didn't feature a lot of black people. Mm. Um, and so maybe there was parts of my physical identity, my hair, certain features that I thought were less desirable because everybody who was put in a position of desirability didn't look like me. Mm. However, I wasn't necessarily told that like I was undesirable. Mm. I made that jump. You know, like I made that connection. Okay, well, if people in the world don't look like me, then I must not be that. So I don't know. I, I think it's a combination to me because now there are still people who definitely think that having darker skin is less attractive. There definitely are people who think that being gay or a lesbian or just not being straight is an abomination or is a choice or is some kind of seedy lifestyle alternative. And those things don't matter to me anymore because I know who I am. Mm. So, and, and the thing is, like, regardless of what identity you have, I think there are always some people who are going to have an issue with it for whatever reason. So I guess also what you're saying there is that it is more subversive mm -hmm. to accept yourself because then the things that people try and oppress you with don't affect you in the same way. Oh, yeah, completely, completely. Because um, what I have learned is that we can't change other people not very easily, but we can change ourselves and how we see ourselves. And also when we start to understand where other people's want to oppress, discriminate, subjugate comes from, mm. it's a lot less threatening. So, you know, let's say with the concept mm. of like white supremacy, I don't really use that term. I use the term racial inferiority because I think if there are any people, regardless of whatever colour they are, who have to um, view another group as 
subhuman or inferior, I think that is coming from a place of insecurity mm. uh, and inadequacy. Because I think when you're not insecure and you don't feel inadequate, you recognize that something as arbitrary and as meaningless as skin color cannot be a determinant of character. Mm. It's a very stupid, ignorant belief. And so you can only be proud to parade such a belief, I think, if you are yeah, internally um, conflicted or aff- yeah, afflicted or, and feeling some kind of way. And to me, those things are not supreme. People who genuinely felt that they were superior would not live in fear of the so-called inferior race replacing mm. them, which mm. is a lot of the things that like, you know, actual racist people feel. Um, they fear that, you know, you know, black people are coming over, or immigrants are coming over to do this. These things are not secure to me and they're certainly not supreme. And I don't like the idea of validating the delusion mm. that certain races of people are superior so i think if we called it even white inferiority when those people you know and that's not to say of course i'm not saying that about all white people people specifically with racist attitudes i think it's a white inferiority complex Mm. and i think framing it that way helps other people i think that's really interesting because it also goes back to the idea of you know when we demonize a group or we refuse to understand them then there isn't any chance in changing them because we've already decided that they're wrong and mm-hmm. they're evil and that nothing... Exactly. And yeah. actually most people's bad behaviour comes from a place of trauma themselves or a society that doesn't help them fit in in some way or they're looking for longing in another way. Yes. And then are radicalised by a group who gives them a sense of direction and purpose. Mm-hmm. And which is why I'm quite... Um, I'm quite hesitant and sceptical around uh, group identities in general um, because I think when we're under the sway and influence of a group, uh, we can sacrifice principles for acceptance. Mm, I think that's really interesting. And I saw that you retweeted once a tweet, which I'm going to read, which says, nobody cares about your gender or your race, even half as much as you do. You crazy rich narcissists. If people wanted to call you slurs, they would. It's their refusal, refusal to indulge your self-aggrandizing and self-debasing fantasies that actually makes you so mad. And I think it's really interesting for us to talk about, I know you didn't write that, but identity politics and the way that we view our identities today and even what you're talking about with group identities kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of not wanting to say something that doesn't go with the group mentality because otherwise you might be demonised in some way. Identity politics, I think, has some utility. Um, And in many ways, you could say that, you know, all politics is a form of identity politics. Mm. So like if we look at conservatives, um, they they have an identity that might be whether it's religious or one steeped in tradition or one steeped in the nation state or in England and they vote according to those values. You know, that's what kind of gives them their political compass. Mm. And so in many ways, I think all politics are identity politics. However, this current wave of identity politics, uh, I think has been, just like many things that happen on social media, has probably been largely divorced from its origins. Mm. And so now I think uh, we are seeing people for their identity first before their character and we're making a lot of assumptions. Mm. And so I would say that the current way that identity politics plays out, I would say is often unconstructive because I don't think it allows us to view each other um, in humane ways. And so it's not necessarily the framework that I used to view the world. Um, And I think it's too focused on a notion of power that I think is corrosive. The only power that I 
want to aspire to and the only power that I respect is power over yourself everything else to me feels to be I don't know it just seems like a recipe for disaster when you're looking to have power over other people or power in the external world so anyway um yeah I think it I think it really um it really helps to solidify this corrosive understanding of power. So yeah, I, I I just don't think I never see people emerging from identity politics um becoming more empathetic, becoming more compassionate or becoming more curious. I see people emerge with either a grudge or a guilt or mm. lots of guilt. I think also identity has been commercialized and yes. it's become important to identify people in certain groups in order to say who they are or like for me as an artist mm -hmm. it always is a thing mm -hmm, <laughs> when I do yeah. anything it's mm -hmm. like oh a this 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 and this artist okay <laughs> and yeah, it's yeah. like oh but I'm just a person right right <laughs> I don't actually need you to list all of the things that make me who I am on quote yes yeah and I think it's interesting talking about that in terms of what you're saying about a grudge or it it definitely isn't something that is looking inward. It's saying, acknowledge me mm. for who I am. It's asking outwardly. And, and I don't think there's a problem with becoming empowered by people acknowledging who, who you are. Mm -hmm. But I can definitely see what you're saying in terms of that change in direction. I feel like the way that you think is very, what can I do with my power mm -hmm. as an agent in society? And how can that change the world? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in identity politics, it's much more about how can I force other people to acknowledge me as I am and accept that version of myself? Yes, I think we have to become, and it's hard to do, and it's hard for me to do, and I'm definitely not there. It's a, I think it's a lifelong practice for us all. I think the best way to get people to change their minds rather than trying to convince people, or rather than trying to um, illustrate your humanity or that you're just the same, is to just be a living embodiment of your ideals, mm. you know? And if you're a living embodiment of your ideals, I think that that energy transpires and people feel it and people are interested in it and they want to know you. And, and if there's something in you that they find inspiring, then hopefully they will take that on themselves. But you can't change anyone's mind that you don't respect. You know, you can't change anyone's mind that you see as deplorable. And if you're coming into situations viewing people who are different from you as evil, maybe because they're conservative or innately racist, maybe because they're white, the conversation has already um, ended before it started. And equally, I think you, this is something you touched on earlier. Um, you know, we use the words evil and hate a lot. I try not to use those words because when we use the word evil to describe someone or when we say that someone is hateful, it stops the conversation, I think, where it should begin. Mm. Because then you're like, okay, he's evil, so that's that. Well, no, well, evil, if you like, is made of something. Mm. And let's interrogate what that is. What's and, brought them to that point. Yeah, yeah. And what is hate? You know, hate probably to me, I imagine, is a combination of insecurity, fear, a sense of inadequacy, envy, and many things. And, mm. and those things are worth looking at. So, yeah, I just find terms like evil and hate to be mystifying mm. of what actually is there. Well, I think even the example of before we understood serial killers as serial mm. killers, they were just like these evil demon people. Mm -hmm. And it meant that we had no understanding of how their minds worked. Exactly. There wasn't a term for a serial killer. It was just these people who had gone completely wild, if you like. And actually, as soon as we decided to interrogate them, to interview them, to understand them, it completely changed the way that we understood people who might think in a certain way and it might cause them to act in a certain way and then we can prevent those things happening. Completely. Um, there's a guy called Daryl Davis and surprisingly enough, he was in this documentary, a Black Lives Matter documentary, uh, maybe in 2015, 16. 
And Daryl Davis is a black musician, uh, a jazz musician, I believe, from somewhere in America. And he actually goes out and he speaks to Ku Klux Klan members. Mm, We talked about this. Yes. Mm. Um, And I remember when he was on the Black Lives Matter documentary, um, some of the activists were very angry at him and called him a sellout, called him a coon. Uh, But the thing is, Daryl Davis actually got many KKK members to to give up, you know, Mm. like he actually managed to convince or not even convince by talking to them and like him accepting their humanity and in turn them accepting his humanity seemed to be more uh, beneficial and more persuasive than many of the other approaches that we take. And it's also very brave. And I'm not saying that people should go out of their way to, you know, find like, I don't know, neo-Nazis or like KKK members. But I would just say that like everybody's got a story. And in the same way that um, minority people may have come to view the world the way that they do, based on their set of experiences, so have others, Mm. you know? Um, And I just think it's worth thinking about that. Do you think that, because I think that's really interesting, and um, I think there are a lot of examples of that in history, Mm -hmm. but I think we're at a time where young people engaging in activism or social issues today very much come from the viewpoint that it's not my job Mm -hmm. to fix you in Mm -hmm. your problems Mm -hmm. and we've done that for too long Mm -hmm. what do you think of that no I, I agree because like I said I'm not necessarily someone who would go out of my way to seek out uh people who I know are actively um racist or homophobic however when I do meet someone who has those views I just don't shy away from it I'm Mm. curious yeah that's Mm. all so I I wouldn't say hunt it out um, but it's not threatening to me because I see it as an insecurity in themselves because you're comfortable with yourself yeah yeah so like if someone tells me that like they think um, being gay is a choice which isn't necessarily homophobic but one one might say it's ignorant I'd say how do you know that you know (laughs) like because you can only know it's a choice if you know you have the choice. Mm. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so that's, yeah, yeah, so that's quite revealing. Yeah. What are you saying here? Yeah. You know, and, and I funny. quite like I quite like playing with people in that way. You know, or like, you know, I've got people in my family who are just kind of like, you know, whenever I see two men kiss, you know, it just makes me angry. Yeah, I've and heard like, that lots of times. And I'm like, ooh, why? Tell yeah. me about that. Oh, you know, it's just, you know, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm. But when you see two straight people kiss, does it make you uncomfortable? No. And then he'll say something like, oh, you know, it just, you know, it promotes it. So I'm like, oh, so you think if two people kiss, you know, two men kiss, that that could turn someone gay. That means that person can't be that straight then. If you could just be turned just by someone, you know, and it gets to these points that are really uncomfortable for Mm. them. Um, and I just think that's fun. And I also <laughs> it forces them to look inward, I exactly. guess. Exactly. And so that's scarier for people than being hostile. Mm. That's scarier than like... Well, nobody wants to have to challenge their worldview that they've cultivated over so much time. Right. And you're sitting there telling them, actually showing them that it doesn't always make sense. Yes, exactly. And that's, like, like you said, quite revealing. Exactly. I think when we... When we give people the response that they want, you know, I guess in some way that they feel like they've won. And it's just, I don't know, I just don't, don't, I don't think people should fall into, not so easily, don't fall into the traps that people set for you. Mm. Um, I think we should, as best as we can, you know, and I know it's a hard practice because, you know, we've heard so many things about our identities that might be denigrating that when we hear another one, it just feels like it's like... uh, It's triggering. Exactly, Mm. completely. So I understand why people won't want to do it, but I think you can often find out more and reveal more about a certain person and their own psychology by questioning it. I definitely would love to be better at that. I definitely have 
that feeling of being triggered when someone says something that goes against who I am as a mm -hmm. person or feels degrading towards that. Um, I think it is more useful to be able to have a conversation. Sometimes I find it difficult, especially if it's with family mm -hmm. or you have this kind of preconception that brings in an, an emotionality into the situation to put that aside and be really strong in the sense that I know who I am. And maybe that does come from the idea that I'm not completely sure with who I am. And so when some, somebody criticizes it, I just want to be defensive rather than be calm. Mm -hmm. How do we practice that? How do we practice not reacting in that very visceral way, which is kind of quite natural to yeah. humans based so strongly on our identities? Maybe I think it's easier for me because hatred isn't a real thing to me. Hatred is just the name given to a set of behaviors so let's say hate is the manifestation of other feelings mm. and when we know that there are other feelings there and also I don't think I take people's ignorance and um, foolishness I guess I don't take it personally I see mm. it as a reflection of them um, and so when we learn to not take these things personally when we learn that these things are a reflection of how someone is feeling a reflection of their own unstable mindset it's it's just not it's not about you I think that's mm. what it is I think I recognize that everybody's ignorance foolishness racism sexism whatever it may be it's not actually about me you know I may be the target but this is very much a you thing you know and mm. I'm I'm more interested in helping you recognize why you have this thing going on but also I think stoicism you know I, I very much like the stoic philosophy uh, because in life, there are so many horrible things that are going to keep happening. We're going to go through breakups. We might lose jobs. Our careers might go in different places. We might have public shaming, especially with the internet now. I mean, I think a lot more of us are going to mm. face uh, uh, public shaming. Um, you know, people die. And so there are so many parts of life that are just naturally, you know, suffering is written into the contract of existence. And so if you don't want to be someone who crumbles at each hurdle, then I think we have to learn how to um, how to approach difficult conversations and difficult situations in our lives without letting them take everything from us. Mm. You know, without letting racist, that let's not make racist take so much from us that we become hateful people mm. or that we become hostile people. Then these people are winning, mm. you know? Um, and so that's what it is. I don't want anyone else's ignorance, foolishness and the rest of it to be any implication on who I am and what I believe is right. And I think also just thinking about when you're in those situations, it is about looking inward and checking why is this triggering me? Yes. What in me is this triggering? And is it to do with almost a lack of control of my perceived reality? You know, I want a space that accepts me in this, this and this way. And when I meet someone who shares a different view it reminds me that I'm not in control mm. of my life and there are people who are having control in lots of exerting their control in lots of different ways and maybe it's about letting go of that control and being in the moment with that person mm -hmm. and realizing that you can have an effect in a different way mm -hmm. if you're willing to put aside your own biases mm -hmm. in that situation yeah I think yeah it's just like you know, you have your opinion based on a set of experiences and things that have happened to you. And it's just like finding out why they have that. And the root cause often isn't hatred. You know, there's a there's a thread that can be followed. Mm, definitely. I often think about how obsessed we are culturally with viewing and being viewed. And mm -hmm. it's something that I think about a lot because obviously the world that we live in. And I remember reading once before about the French philosopher Foucault. Mm -hmm who spoke about the panopticon, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're versed in this as well, and, and he talks about the advent of the portable camera and how all of a sudden 
we could be surveilled all the time and no longer was the surveillance from an authoritative figure above. It was amongst us all the time and that paired with technology mm-hmm. means that actually we surveil each other all day, every day, mm. all the time. Movement in nature has always inspired Kia and now it has inspired a completely new musical instrument. Introducing Movement, the world's first instrument that's scientifically designed to inspire you. A collaboration between the house audio, renowned synth builder Arthur Jolie, and Kia, built using the sounds of movement from nature to make music that puts you into a creative state of flow. Discover the inspirational sound of movement at kia.com. Kia, movement that inspires. Time. And I guess I wanted to talk to you about what that voyeuristic existence means for us. Have we all become caricatures of ourselves because we're being viewed and seeing ourselves all the time and creating ourselves in that view of others? And where the line is between self-love and self-obsession? Because mm. it's something that I think about a lot. Yes, me too. Me too. Um, yes, because I think um, we mistakenly call our generation narcissistic. And I don't know if it's a narcissistic one. I think it's a self-obsessed one. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about using like a psychological diagnosis when we don't necessarily have that qualification or uh, the know-how. And so when I look at the internet um, and I look at the polarisation that exists in the world, rather than a culture war, I look at it as a culture shock. You Mm. know, it's in many ways we now live in a big open plan house together, which is the internet, (laughs) you know, and we've got conservatives there. We've got racists in it. We've got the liberals. We've got the liberal elites. We've got the journalists. We've got the, the abstract, absurd academics. And we've all had to try and find out a way to live together. Mm. Um, But we can't stand each other. I like this analogy. (laughs) We can't stand each other. We hate each other. Um, But we also can't stop looking at each other Mm. Um, because for one, I think, you know, humans do have a negativity bias. So things that are negative stand out to us more. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure you'll know this. I'll know this. You know, people can praise your art, your music, your words. And then there's that one comment. Mm. You know, there's that one comment and you can't move past it. And equally, for as many people that love black culture, engage and indulge in black culture, there's those few. Mm. And we can't get over those few, you know, or there's those few conservatives or those few liberals who have these egregious views that we just can't get over. And so because we're so addicted to viewing these people because Mm. they validate our worldviews. So they validate our hostility. So we have to seek out these people for the justification of our um, hostility, Mm. of our aggression, of our want to be intolerant of certain views. Um, Yeah, I think we have become self-obsessed in many, many, many ways. I think that's a very important point that you're making as well, that we seek out the opposition to validate ourselves a lot of the time. Yes, And that I think doesn't so. always mean we want to understand how people got to that point and have that discussion with them. It's just that as long as you exist, then I'm allowed to be right in my views. Yes. Or wrong and strong, however you want yeah, to see yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Um, because generally speaking, I mean, the internet brings out a different side of us all. Of course, you know, we're all behind the screen, so we're all a lot braver than we normally would be. Mm. And we all probably have so much that we can't say in day-to-day life to people that the internet is an outlet for a lot of uh, for a lot of people who use it. Um, and so, although it's uh, an aspect uh, of real life, it's not real life because most of us can go about our day-to-day lives, and generally, you know, we're not going to be told like you know, we're a wanker for mm. this or we're this mm. and that for this and that. You know, like we are on the internet, and so the internet gives us a false 
perception i think of what reality is mm. um most of us are not that hostile in real life because we'd all be getting boxed every day <laughs> you know and so we just it's can't true. afford to be it's true but also you don't have those uncomfortable conversations with your friends and family right when you're with them because everybody's trying to maintain relationships exactly there is no relationship to maintain on online exactly. yeah yeah and so i mean but we're, we're coming online and we're seeing all of this because we haven't got we haven't got social media etiquette yet we're still babies mm. you know because social media is what 10 years old and so like or something like not 10 years old maybe it's slightly older than that now but we're still infants we mm. haven't worked out an etiquette yet we have an etiquette for the tube you know you walk on this side you know and blah 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 mm. we don't have that for mm. the internet so yet yeah exactly um, so we're all in this open plan house and there's no rules mm. you know so it's bound to be chaos but I think as we grow further in our internet usage and our social media habits I think we will work out an etiquette that is most conducive to our mental health and actually to being curious and, and understanding the world because the internet and social media I will maintain is a great resource and I don't think we've utilized it enough in in the way that it can transform the world but you know we're infants mm. still but I think we are going to get to a stage where it's more beneficial than it is um, unhelpful and I feel like there's this balance that happens with the combination of capitalism and social media and this kind of wanting to be seen and to be mm -hmm. viewed and to be seen the loudest, mm -hmm. which creates this chaos where everybody is shouting into the abyss to be heard. I'm always wary of the balance between self-love and self-obsession. How can we love and accept ourselves and not do it in a way where we feel completely detached from anyone else's self-love and self-acceptance. It's like, if you don't accept me the way that I am, then bye. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make so much sense to me. Where does um, compromise come? In any relationship, it is made up of compromise in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're in an area, especially in popular culture, which is can sometimes be framed in a feminist perspective and is, and is about female empowerment, which mm -hmm. is important mm -hmm. because so many women haven't put themselves first throughout history. But then we get to a space where it's like, it, to me, it almost sounds like I am perfect in all my imperfections, so I refuse to be reflective mm -hmm. and I refuse to engage in anyone who doesn't agree with the way that I see the world. Mm -hmm. And I find that sometimes problematic. Yes, you know, it is. Um, you know, I think that we're all constantly at all points a combination of good and evil. You know, mm. again, I don't really use these words, but let's say, you know, these are the words that we use in society. But no, I think actually we're a combination of them all. Um, and I don't think people explore their undesirable aspects enough um, mm. because we've labeled them bad. And so what I suggest that people do often is to, at least in mind, is to forget the words good and bad and only to work with constructive and destructive mm. because good and bad are too much of a value judgment so let's say if you're going inwards and you realize that you're jealous of your best friend you don't want to acknowledge that because we've said that that's bad and that means that you're uh, there's uh, guilt attached yeah to there's it. guilt attached yeah. to that but let's say if we just recognize that to be destructive, it allows us to kind of open that conversation up more if we're not calling ourselves bad people. It's destructive because it means that it could put a barrier between me and my best friend. It's destructive because it means that I may not always be there for my friend's success. And then we can start to interrogate, why is mm. that there? And it may not be because, you know, you don't like your friend, but maybe your friend has managed to do something that you want to do, but you don't have the confidence yet. Mm. So I think jealousy, rather than seeing it as a bad thing, it's a map. You know, mm. jealousy is a map. Anxiety, I think, is a map. To showing you yeah. how you feel. Exactly. Mm. And, and, and what maybe you should be doing. So when I'm anxious about certain things, you know, 
I often recognize like, so if I notice that I'm anxious around certain people, um, then I often recognize on deeper reflection, it's because I don't actually feel very comfortable with this person. Mm. You know, all these things about this person that make me uncomfortable that I haven't said, mm. you know, and so there's an elephant in the room. There is definitely a difference between self-love and self-obsession. You use the word detachment and I think detachment is a good word. And I think we do without being disconnected. I think the word detachment can seem scary on the front because it, you know, it just seems like disconnection, but I don't think detachment is disconnection. I think actually detachment is how we get connected in the same way that sometimes when you're up too close to an image, you can't see it. You mm. need to stand back, you know, so you can understand and see things more clearly. And this is what we need to do with ourselves. Sometimes we need to take a step back from ourselves. Mm. You know, I think we often can't see other people is because we're so rooted in the identity. We're so rooted in our blackness, our womanhood, our sexuality, being straight, being white, whatever it means mm. um, or whatever it is for you that we can't see. That obsession with our own identities yes. doesn't allow us to engage in anyone else's. Yeah, yet. yeah, it's blinding. Mm. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Is there anything that you wish people would do more or less of? If there was something that you could shout okay, <laughs> to oh the gosh, audience. God, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you kind of talked about it a bit before okay. in terms of what you were saying about recognizing your jealousy or recognizing mm -hmm. how you feel in a moment yeah. and I think that's one of those things mm -hmm. but is there anything else that you can think of okay I wish we were more curious mm. I wish we were more self-aware I wish we were more loving and I wish we understood love beyond the romantic context more mm. I wish that we would stop being so quick to assume that everybody who doesn't feel the same way that we are is some form of bigot what else do I wish that we would stop doing? Oh God, how am I forgetting? Because I mean, I'm sure I spend most of my days thinking about, <laughs> thinking what, people about what people could do better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know what? And here's another thing. I think we should choose better heroes. And when I say heroes, sometimes, okay, this is moving away maybe from some of the stuff that we've been speaking about. But, you know, one of the other conversations to emerge in recent years is mental health, mm. body positivity. And, you know, it's been revealed and we probably already knew it that like a lot of us don't feel good in our bodies. A lot of us don't feel attractive. A lot of us have um, really um, tough times with our mental health. And so when I think about the internet generation and I think about some of the things that we value and the things that we think of as success the things that we call beautiful it's like many people don't even have a chance you know how do you have self-esteem when the only people that you allow yourself to look up to have a makeup artist a stylist mm. millions you know what I mean like money to laser remove every imperfection mm. and all you, you of course you're not going to have a chance if these are the only people that you allow yourself to think of as beautiful and as successful and so I would say that people especially people who uh, struggle with their self-image and their physical image, I would say choose more human people to um, to aspire to or to, to have as role models. I've really experienced that actually as well, where I'm not someone who engages that much in celebrity culture or, mm -hmm. or looks up to people in those kind of spaces. And I experienced once recently when I was talking to a group of, well, two women, one older like parent age and one a bit older than me but similar similar age and they would both call themselves feminists mm -hmm. both very open and empowered in in who they are and it was so 
crazy hearing them talk about celebrities and the way they looked and nitpicking all these things about them. And it, it was really interesting to see the way that we view celebrity culture and the way that we view people in certain spaces to just like not be human or oh not, God, it's horrible, not be it? in the same space as us. And actually, if we, why don't you want someone who looks more like you to play that role? Why do you want someone who is white and who is this and who is that? Mm-hmm. When you see yourself as engaged in understanding that you know you want to change culture or you want to move culture forward in a way that is progressive I what I realize is that a lot of people don't think about their own unconscious feelings towards celebrity culture and that mm. idea that you're looking up to someone who doesn't even look like you mm. and then someone's offered who does look like you and you wouldn't want them to play the role because you like too much the idea of aspiring to something that you can't have exactly and that is quite scary to me that, yeah. that doesn't feel like it's based in reality that that kind of churns the cogs of capitalism in, in the sense of making us feel insecure and then making mm. us buy millions of things to fit that insecurity. We get the world, I think, I think we get the world of our doing, you know, in many ways. This world mm. isn't how it is for no reason. Mm. We're all, you know, it's not just the capitalists. It's not the whites. It's not white supremacy. It's not, no, it's all of us, mm. you know, like we get the world. I don't know if, I mean, I used to say we get the world that we deserve. Maybe I'll be kinder. Have you heard the saying, we enjoy the chains of our ideology? We enjoy the chains. chains of our ideology. No, I haven't heard that. Zizek, okay, like. okay, I do. I do know him stuff. Wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. And, you know, so if you want to dismantle oppression, one has to start dismantling the oppressive notions within themselves first. Mm. You know, that's where it comes from. Because, you know, if you wanted to, um, I often say this is one of my classic hits, but, you know, if you, <laughs> if you wanted to, you could make all the heads of states in all the world, let's say, they could all be black, trans, disabled women. Let's mm. say you could make that. Everyone in power who has the most of power is a black, trans, disabled woman, you know, which, you know, let's say in the identity politics world, you know, can often have, it's like a trifecta of power in many mm. ways. But let's say as long as these people haven't dealt with jealousy, insecurity, greed susceptibility to corruption the same thing will happen in the world because mm. it's not a skin color that produces that behavior it's a mental state or it's mm. the lack of certain esteem the lack of security so yeah i think you know fighting oppression is also fighting it within yourself and maybe that's where i start mm. um i don't i don't understand the other way the other way i'm sure is 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 useful I just don't relate to it. I don't understand starting out there. Mm. You know, you know, I think other people do a better job of kind of critiquing society and politics and the systems. And they're much more knowledgeable than I am and maybe will ever be on those things. But it doesn't make sense to me to start there. Mm. I, I say we have to start here. And as long as we are thinking that... Um, the reason why the world is the way that it is is the fault of this group or that group. I just really think that we're doomed to repeat the same things. It's a diffusion of responsibility. Yes, it is. I think we outsource our responsibility Mm. to everything. In fact, we love the word accountability, but we hate the word responsibility. Mm. And we love the word accountability because accountability on the internet is just a sophisticated way to say bullying. Sometimes. Mm. I I won't say that (laughs) always, you know, but often it's a sophisticated way to say bullying, you know, because it's, again, it's external. You know, like that person did that and I want to hold them accountable for that because if I hold them accountable, then I'm seen as a good person because, hey, I held this person accountable for this Mm. awful thing that they did. But no, responsibility isn't a word that we like enough. So actually, going back to your question, if there was something that I would like us to do more of, it's take responsibility. And if there was something I'd like us to do less of, it's outsourcing responsibility. Mm. 
This is a very big question. <laughs> but, Drum roll. but what is your hope for a world that is progressing? In your eyes, what does that look like to you? What does progress look like to you in a kind of overarching sense? Mm, that is a big question. It's a huge isn't it? question. I'm really sorry. It's okay. I've got a very cheeky smile on my face. Okay. Progression in my utopia would be a world where identity plays less of uh, significance and character does. And in this world, we don't rely on the government as heavily, but we find ways to work and support one another through various practices because we finally recognise that, you know, our governments are often inept and they're never going to create the world that we want. Mm. That world has to come through us. And I hope in this utopia of mine that we recognize that power is first and foremost having it over yourself um, and freedom is not necessarily the ability uh, to do everything you want I think freedom is you know it's simple and and maybe cliche and perhaps trite but I do hope that we just really do see that we have more in common than we do apart and that life isn't a rehearsal every moment is precious people are precious everyone's got something to them we are not as great as we think and we're not as terrible as we think either mm. i think i mean i'm not sure there was a lot of i thinks there <laughs> um but it's something looking like that something to think about and also there is no everybody has at least basic shelter people have food really the thing that will always kill me more than anything in the world is the fact that you know people are dying of starvation you know like in um countries in the global south and not just even in the global south mm. the one thing i want for the world is yeah i really want everybody to have the basics and so many of us do not have the basics um and that would make me happy we're always going to have people who uh, fighting and you know there's a lot of awful things that happen that sadly I don't think we'll ever necessarily get rid of but we can reduce but at the very least for me I, I, I find it hard actually yeah I would say I actually genuinely find it hard to live in a world where we do let people die from starvation so routinely. Do you think that sometimes the conversations that we have around identity or all of these things that you know, do they distract us? Yeah, I think they're very privileged conversations, mm. if I'm honest. These are not the conversations people who are actually suffering are having. Mm. No one's got time for this, mm. you know. And in that sense, I do understand the term liberal elite, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because no one, no one, well, not no one, but like many people who don't know where their next meal is coming from, many people who don't know how to pay their bills, they don't have time to, you know, sit and think about like, a lot of the conversations that we're having at the moment and I do think it distracts us people in the West we're the most privileged people on earth mm. just in the West mm. we have varying degrees of privilege but like we're experiencing things and living a life that so many people weren't just so we can have Nike shoes just so we can have this and so we can have that and we, we, we really forget that and so yeah sometimes I do get upset when we're calling out other people for privilege and this and that and I'm just like like People are suffering for our convenience, mm. you know, and I mean, I get it. It's, it's a global system and, and it's a very hard thing to change if it even can be changed. But I don't think people should lose sight of that. 
you know, we in the West are all someone's oppressor. Mm. You know, as mm. long as we're happy to buy these things, as mm. long as we're happy to go to Primark and buy the cheap clothes. And it's hard for us to think about that. Yeah, it really it's easier for us to be upset about the things that affect us yeah. than about the way that we affect the world. The oh my God, completely. World. I mean, if I'm honest, again, it might be a controversial statement, but I can deal with racism way easier than I can deal with the fact that people are starving. You know, I really, really can. And that mm. the fact that most of us are kind of ignorant of that or like don't acknowledge that, you know, and I really do think that there's a things that if we if our collective efforts were in this direction to these countries i really think that we could do something about that um so yes i do think that a lot of our conversations that make us feel good you know make us feel heard i do think that they distract us from the harrowing and profound suffering that is a part of our world and we talked about it a little bit before but also sometimes you know what you mentioned about the liberal elites is that sometimes certain conversations that we have alienate other groups of people and then it pushes them away from being able to engage in Mm -hmm. the world in a way that would be progressive for society because they already feel like they don't have a seat at the table of course and that might be related to class Mm -hmm. it's more what i'm talking about and levels of access to education and how useful it is for us to tell people constantly that they should be better or they should try harder to be a certain way without offering them any way to do that. Yes. You know, it's hard to be like, you should be like this, you should check your privilege, you should blah, 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 if they have never had access to the education mm-hmm. or the understanding of the world that those people who are telling them to engage in that way have. Yes. And so it's kind of, I think it alienates them in that sense. No, it does completely. It alienates. The thing is, you know, often... Uh, we can think that identity politics or a lot of maybe the new wave of black consciousness uh, in the form of BLM and other maybe um, uh, race-related organisations that have come up in the in the last few years, we can often think that these things are here to help marginalise people. Uh, but often, sadly, when I look closely, it doesn't seem it because I think many black people included are alienated from these conversations if they don't have the correct view Mm. you know like a lot of people are told that you know if they don't have the right terminology which is shifting constantly Mm. you know that they are bigots yeah so it does alienate a lot of people a lot of people do not want to get involved in these conversations because the stakes are so high Mm. you know because it's not just that you'll be told wrong you might be called racist and then that can uh, compromise you professionally you might be called a transphobe and you can maybe have your uh, profession like or your your work terminated or whatever it may be and I just don't think if we actually care about helping people these are the ways to go about it which is why I'm not as interested in critique as I am uplift Mm. you know if it is black people, if it's people who haven't had um, access to certain resources. One thing that upsets me and maybe angers me about academics, especially academics who've come from um, so-called marginalised backgrounds, is that they've managed to find a way to rise up in a system that is hostile to them, but then lay no foundation to tell others how to do that. Mm. All they do is critique the system and make the people who are at the bottom resentful of those around them, you know, where you don't have to deal with that. Mm. You've progressed throughout this system and you're fine. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you're writing your anti-racist books that we're all buying. You're making millions and the rest of us are are now feeling like the world is against us and that we can't relate to someone if they're not the same colour as Mm. us. And if we're not included in something, then it means it's inherently not for us. I think it's wildly irresponsible, if I'm honest, what a lot of academics have done and a lot of activists, a lot of people who are in the business, and that's the problem, in the business, in the business of activism, because it's not a business. It's um, it, it's a way of seeing the world. 
uh, and it's a it's a perception, it's a mindset. Um, and I think when we get in the business of activism, that's when we we lose sight of what it's meant to be about. I um, mean, it's uplift to me for the most part. It's uplifting mm. these people out of this stuff rather than just solely focusing on your opponents. And it's dangerous, I think, what you're saying, because, you know, if you alienate people and they feel disenfranchised, exactly. then they'll go wherever they're accepted. And that gives a lot of energy and space to any group that can make those people feel... Powerful. heard powerful in, heard. in control yeah. of a world that is moving on without them mm-hmm. and that they can't keep up with mm-hmm. and um that's scary to me because i think that it does make people vulnerable mm-hmm. and it does speak to the idea that we're not actually interested in making people's lives better we're just interested in critiquing them and controlling them or holding them accountable for certain things which is important in some sense but it's it's not important if you don't give people the tools to grow exactly. into that space where they can be a more accepting, wholesome person. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to acknowledge that if we want people to change and be better and we want family members or friends to be different, we have to give them or allow them the space to have the tools to be different. Otherwise, you're just critiquing them in a place where they're stuck. Yeah. And it's kind of putting them in a corner in a sense. Mm. And we can't forget the tools that we've had in order to have this mm. opinion. Because mm. we haven't all had it. The thing is, and this is why I think the internet is quite um, a polarised and corrosive space, because a lot of us are coming to this information new. And whenever you learn anything new, um, the impact is quite visceral. Mm. Um, and often I think there's a lot of guilt for what you previously didn't know. Mm. And so there's a lot of overcompensation. Because I think most people would be lying to say that if they knew anything Um, if they knew anything comprehensive about trans identities maybe 10 years ago. Mm. Most people didn't. Mm. You know, of course we knew that trans people existed, but we didn't know the ins and outs Mm. of what that existence looked like. Um, Most of us, including black people, didn't necessarily, until race became, especially as young people, younger people, until race became a mainstream conversation, a lot of us hadn't read the books. Mm. You know, a lot of us couldn't even necessarily... We didn't even know what systemic institutional racism mm. was. Mm. These things are new. And so because they're new, I think that's why um, the energy behind a lot of these uh, new ideas and beliefs that are quite popularized now are so um, passionate and passionate in a way where they can often uh, lose sense of humanity and rationality. Mm. Um, I guess it's about nuance. Right, well. yeah. And I think it's, but I think often we're overcompensating for who we weren't before, mm. you know, and I would say we should forgive ourselves. And if we forgive ourselves for what we didn't know, we can accept what other people are yet to know. Mm. And on that, my final question mm. to you is, <laughs> who are or were the strong women in your life and how have they shaped you? Okay, so the first is it's an obvious one. Many people go for this, but I'm going to actually say my mum. I don't think I've said this before. And although we've definitely had a fraught relationship in our lives and maybe even still now, she's mm. the kindest woman I know. She's very, 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 very kind and very, very, very generous um, and always sees the good in people. And I think I've taken that from her. And although seeing the good in people can sometimes get you burned, mm. um, I wouldn't want a different view of the world. Mm. Um, so my mum... And there's a writer called Susan Sontag who is brilliant to me. Yeah, I love her. Yes. And I really, what I really appreciate about her is because she's a real mental woman in terms of like, she's very mind orientated and she's a very serious woman and very dedicated and loyal to her mind. And I think, I don't know, maybe as a woman, sometimes I haven't always felt like, you know, 
that's called to do. Because sometimes I think women feel like they have to be, um, I don't know, a lot more softer or mm. like, I don't know, there's this thing where like, I don't know, dedicating your life to like an intellectual pursuit. Um, is intimidating yeah, for the world to accept. Exactly. And so I really love that in her. Like I, I feel like she has validated me in doing the same thing mm. or feeling comfortable in thinking deeply about things. So Susan Sontag, definitely. Um, Maya Angelou, I would say, is a great blend of love and activism. Mm. I really, really like her. Who else? Uh, there's a woman, okay, this woman is quite controversial. So uh, investigate her at your own risk. Um, <laughs> her name is Camille Paglia, uh, an Italian-American academic um, feminist, but she comes at feminism from a completely different angle, an angle that many would call even anti-feminist. It's not anti-feminist. It's just very, very different. Mm. And I really like her, again, in, like genius, incredible, like hyper-intellectual. Um, she knows so much about history, film, art. Uh, I just find her really inspiring and she's very controversial. And I think I'm inspired by women who are off the script, yeah, I like people who are off the script, you know, people who uh, are not afraid to be disliked, not for the sake of, you know, wanting to be controversial, but for the sake of wanting to be themselves. Mm. You know, I don't think it's something that women have often felt empowered or encouraged enough to do. There's lots of controversial male figures, mm. lots. Um, well, but they're, they're not cancelled as quick, are they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, but there aren't so many when it comes to women like that. Even the woman whose tweet that you read out um, that you did in the beginning, her name is Amy Therese. Uh, and, and she's a, a woman... She's on Twitter. Uh, she's like, a, maybe you could call her a political commentator in a way. Very, very controversial. But I think she says great things. And even when people in general, because all of these names that I've mentioned definitely say things that I don't agree with. But what I do agree and appreciate in them is like this burning desire to be themselves. Mm. You've given us a lot of homework. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of my Strong Woman podcast. If you loved what you heard, please subscribe and tune in on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Big love. This month, the spotlight is on our planet. Keep listening to hear a podcast that is making a difference. Hi, this is Alan from Tracks to Relax, a show designed to help you relax and get to sleep through guided meditation. We're celebrating Earth Day this year with a special sleep meditation and poem that's all about appreciating the planet we live on and giving it some much-needed love. Not only will this meditation help you relax deeply and fall asleep, it's our hope that it will also create a sense of gratitude within you as you listen and inspire you to do more personally to clean and preserve this beautiful planet for future generations to enjoy. To listen to our Earth Day episode, simply search Tracks to Relax wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.